Welcome to Beyond Barbarossa, the first English language podcast in the world to focus on the Eastern Front of World War II. Stalingrad Part 3, Episode 37. I'm Scott Burry, as usual in the Redbeard studio on traditional Anishinaabe Algonquin territory, also known as Ottawa. Last episode, uh, I looked at the German drive into Stalingrad for the beginning of that battle. From its initial heavy bombing of the city to the arrival of the Panzers in September. It described how the Germans took the heights of Mameyev Kurgan, the huge hill in the middle of the city. The Red Army fought back ferociously, far beyond anyone's expectations, let alone the Germans, and prevented them from using the high ground as a launch pad for artillery. General Chukov was put in charge of the resistance in the city itself, the head of the 64th Army, and he organized a resistance that, despite all odds and expectations, kept the Germans from reaching the Volga River. Well, partly. For a long time, anyway. The Germans did reach the shore of the Volga and shelled the Soviet vessels crossing the river, ferrying reinforcements and supplies in and the wounded out. The Germans eventually got close enough to the shore of the Volga that they could shell Soviet vessels that were crossing the river, bringing in reinforcements and supplies and carrying out the wounded. By the autumn, Stalingrad was in the depth of the hell of urban warfare. Hell for both sides. The intense, intense isn't even the word for it, the overwhelming bombing of Stalingrad from the very beginning of the assault on the city in August created not only a barely habitable, not even habitable, barely survivable urban warfare hell, it created thousands of hiding places in the rubble for Soviet fighters, anti-tank guns, booby traps, and especially snipers. So, in that last episode, we described the first German advance into the south of the city, where 50 Red Army soldiers hold up in the iconic grain elevators, and with a few submachine guns and two anti-tank rifles, held off an entire Panzer Corps for two days until they ran out of ammunition and had to withdraw, leaving their wounded behind. What happened soon after is what the world remembers most about the Battle of Stalingrad. The fight for Pavlov's house, the fighting in the factory districts, and the sniper war. So, last episode I promised I would talk about Pavlov's house. This is, again, something that people, if they know anything about the Battle of Stalingrad, they've heard of Pavlov's house. So... We're picking this episode up with, uh, with mid-September 1942. At this point, the Red Army holds just a narrow strip of land along the bank of the River Volga. That's all they've got left of Stalingrad. The 42nd Regiment's commander, Colonel Yellen, whom I mentioned last episode in the fighting in the Central Square area, he identified buildings to use as strong defensive points. One was a damaged apartment building between the bank of the Volga and the 9th of January Square. I put a map of the city at this time on the webpage for this episode to help you locate that. It's right into the uh, northern part of the 
center area. Under these orders, Sergeant Yakov Pavlov and three soldiers crawled across a courtyard, up to the building, and threw grenades into the first floor windows. Any of the Germans who were not killed by the blasts ran away. And that allowed Sergeant Pavlov and his men to crawl inside. There they found some Russian survivors, both military and civilian. They wanted to evacuate the wounded out, but the Germans counterattacked, pinning them down inside the building until the next day. That's when more men from that 42nd Regiment arrived and helped uh, build up the force inside the building. Their commander, Lieutenant Afanasev, ordered laying mines and barbed wire around the building and trenches to be dug back to the Volga bank for supply and communication. But after just a few days, Lieutenant Afanasov was wounded and which blinded him. So that left Sergeant Pavlov, aged 24, in control of the building. And that's why it became known as Pavlov's house. With machine guns, anti-tank rifles, mortars, and sidearms, they created a small fortress that commanded a line of sight north, south, and west, defending the Volga bank to the east. Artillery stationed across the river also helped defend it. One of the civilians that Pavlov's men found when they took the building was named Maria Ulyanova, and she stayed on to help defend the building. They held out inside for two months, 60 days. According to multiple sources, the Germans attacked several times each of those 60 days. But the Soviets had the advantage of having a really good hiding place. It was also elevated above their attackers. Pavlov had one of the anti-tank rifles set up on the roof. And this was especially effective at destroying panzers because this tank's armor on top was relatively thin. And also, the panzers could not raise their cannon high enough to shoot back. I'm sure you're wondering what I wondered when researching this story. Why didn't the Germans bomb Pavlov's house from the air? We're not alone in asking this question. In his book, Enemy at the Gates, William Craig said, quote, Instead of bringing in planes or artillery to smash the obstacle, the Germans unaccountably continued to attack it head-on and suffered the consequences. End quote. Craig also described this scene from a month into the siege of Pavlov's house, 20th October. Quote, In their frenzy to hurl every Russian into the Volga, the Germans even went after Yakov Pavlov's stronghold in the relatively quiet central part of Stalingrad. Four tanks came into Lenin Square. I thought it was called 9th of January Square, but anyway. Four tanks came into Lenin Square, stopped, and fired point-blank into the building. But the wily Pavlov was ready for them. Because the tanks could neither elevate nor depress their cannon at such close range, he had moved some of his men to the fourth floor and others to the cellar. A single shot from his lone anti-tank gun put one enemy panzer out of action, and machine gun fire scattered the German infantry. As the foot soldiers bolted, the tanks skidded back to safety around the corner. End quote. General Chukov, commander of the 62nd Army and thus the Red Army defenders of the city, later said more than once that Pavlov's men killed more enemy soldiers than the Germans lost in taking Paris. 
Finally, Pavlov's garrison was relieved on the 25th of November with a stronger Red Army unit as part of the greater strategy to trap the 6th Army. But we'll get to that later. Pavlov himself survived the battle, received several honors, including Hero of the Soviet Union, and was elected three times to the Supreme Soviet of the Russian Soviet Federation. Antony Bivor said in his book Stalingrad that Pavlov became archimandrite of a monastery. He died at age 63 in 1981. Another trope of the Battle of Stalingrad was the Sniper War. The wholesale destruction of buildings, as I mentioned, created thousands of hiding places for sharpshooters, and the Red Army soldiers with the best aim took full advantage. This created something of a cult of snipers on both sides of the conflict. Newspapers published their kill counts. The most famous sniper, of course, was Vasily Grigorovich Zaitsev from the Ural Mountains. He killed 225 German soldiers during the Battle of Stalingrad and became the main character in the movie Enemy at the Gates. One note, despite sharing a title with William Craig's book, that movie has little to do with reality. But anyway, the, tr the real Zaitsev uh, gained fame uh, when he killed 40 Germans between the 22nd of September and 19th of October, so about a month. Newspaper reports about this exploit made him famous among the Soviets and the Axis. Over two months, from 10th October to 17th December, Zaitsev killed those 225 of the enemy. He became a trainer of other snipers, including one Tanya Chalnova, and they became lovers. So this was one of the accurate parts of that movie. One of his early exploits was to uh, attempt attaching his, the telescopic sight of his sniper rifle to an anti-tank rifle. With this, he was able to fire a shell directly through the loophole of a German machine gun nest. However, trying to repeat this, he found that the anti-tank shells weren't consistent enough to be reliable for this kind of use. And Zaitsev returned to his trusty rifle. Zaitsev did, though, implement sniper tactics that apparently are still used by the Russian army. One was to make sure he changed his hiding spot after every few kills. Another is something called the sixes, where three teams, each comprising a sniper and a spotter, cover an area from three directions. Both the book Enemy at the Gates and the movie describe a sniper duel between Zaitsev and the chief of the German sniping school, Major Erwin Koenig. But Antony Bivor points out that there is no mention of this duel, nor even of a Major Koenig, in any German source. Bivor claims that this whole story, exciting as it was, was made up by Soviet propaganda. Now, despite being the most famous Soviet sniper, Zaitsev did not have the highest number of kills. That was someone we know today only by his code name, Zikon. He reached 224 kills by the 20th of November and went on to um, kill even more before the end of the battle. 
the cult of the sniper spread to other Red Armies and other formations on the Soviet side. Uh, one codenamed Kobasa, <laughs> that's Ukrainian sausage. His uh, trick was to set up little white flags in dummy um, trenches or hiding spots. And he attached strings to them, which he could then pull. So when he would pull them, the little white flag would come up. This would lure Germans into thinking, ah, here's another Red Army soldier who wants to surrender. And when the German showed himself, Kobasa would fire. In September, the Germans' focus in the Battle of Stalingrad moved away from that central square and the main ferry landing train station north to the factory district. And this is three main factory complexes, the Berkadi Gun Factory, the Red October Factory, and the Zerzinski Tractor Works. In late September, the 14th Panzer Division tried to move into the tractor factory from the southwest, so coming up from the main part of the city while the 60th Motorized Division pushed straight eastward. But they found Soviet regiments, freshly arrived from Siberia, had made the ruined factories into even better defensive fortifications than Pavlov's house. Meanwhile, Katyusha rocket launchers, also called Stalin's organs, which fired dozens of missiles at one time, were shelling from across the Volga. German casualties reached shocking levels. By late September, early October, the Germans had to pause in their drive into the factory district. Still, Hitler ordered another offensive on the factory district to start no later than 14th October. Dismayed, Paulus ordered the army in. The attack started with a heavy air raid. One Red Army soldier wrote in his diary, quote, The whole sky was full of aircraft, every flak gun firing bombs roaring down, aircraft crashing, an enormous piece of theater which we followed with very mixed feelings from our trenches." End quote. One Soviet officer wrote, the men in the communication trenches stumbled and fell as if on a ship's deck during a storm. End quote. At noon, the 14th Panzer Division with three infantry divisions pushed in from the north. General Chukov sent in the 84th Tank Brigade against them. A German officer wrote, quote, It was a terrible, exhausting battle, on and below the ground, in ruins, cellars, and factory sewers. End quote. The Germans broke through, but Red Army soldiers burst out from the ruins behind the attackers. There were no more front lines. The Germans reached the Volga bank by the night of the 15th of October. For the next six days, the Luftwaffe relentlessly bombed boats ferrying supplies across the river and evacuating the wounded back. And still the Red Army fought on, clinging to the remains of the factory district. One Luftwaffe pilot wrote home, I cannot understand how men can survive such a hell, yet the Russians sit tight in the ruins and holes and cellars and a chaos of steel skeletons which used to be factories. End quote. On 16th October, the Germans pushed down the river bank from the tractor factory toward the Berkadi plant, but encountered Soviet tanks hiding in the rubble, plus artillery and Katyusha attacks from across the river. Gradually, the 62nd Army defenders hold on the city, 
was reduced to ferry landings until their last landing point in this part of the city was under direct machine gun fire. Still, the Russians held on. As soldiers ran out of ammunition, they would call down artillery attacks on their own positions. One radioed, Begin shelling our position. In front of us is a large group of fascists. Farewell, comrades. We did not retreat. End quote. That gets me all the time. At the end of October, exhausted, the Germans had to pause because of their losses. One division was down from maximum strength of 15,000 fighters to 535. Conditions for both sides fighting in Stalingrad were hellish. The Soviets had continual food shortages and bringing in any kind of supplies meant crossing the Volga, making them vulnerable to a German artillery and air bombardment. Living conditions were even worse for the trapped civilians. The Germans were also suffering from insufficient food. Ammunition was also getting harder to come by at the end of an incredibly extended supply line, prone to partisan attack over 1,500 miles. In late October, the Germans started to issue winter uniforms, but these would prove inadequate on the open steppe. Soldiers in the city and outside it were plagued by lice, typhus, and other communicable diseases. General Paulus himself contracted dysentery during the siege, which he could not shake for months. In fact, the Soviets noticed a weakening in the Germans, which they called the German disease. Historians and medical experts have speculated that the insufficient food, coupled with months of uninterrupted extreme stress and trauma, reduced the soldiers' resistance to disease. Thousands of young men sickened and died in circumstances that normally they should have easily borne. In November, the temperatures dropped as low as minus 18 Celsius, or about minus 5 Fahrenheit. Ice was building on the Volga, making crossing more dangerous. Hitler ordered a final push to clean up the last of the resistance in Stalingrad. Apparently, by this point, he was obsessed with the symbolism of the city bearing the name of the man who, to him, was the devil. Hitler even ordered that tank drivers should fight as infantry to make up enough numbers. This horrified the tank commanders. Instead of using their valuable, experienced tank drivers, they assembled cooks, medical orderlies, communications people, anyone else to act as cannon fodder and bait for the snipers. Their final assault began on the 11th of November. Paulus, at this point, had only the remains of six reduced divisions, but he did have heavy air support, and the Stukas began an incredible air bombardment that lasted all day. The next morning opened with a hurricane of fire, as it was called, from German artillery, followed by infantry who got within 70 meters of the Volga bank. Now we can see the extremes that the Russian people there were experiencing. For example, on 14th November, a large steamer managed to bring over 400 soldiers and 40 tons of supplies into Stalingrad. 
and they were returned with 350 wounded on board. But the fire from German machine guns and artillery and mortars sank many other vessels, and the passengers froze and drowned in the freezing water. Wolfram von Richthofen, head of the Luftwaffe forces, the Luftflotte in Stalingrad, mused that if they can't finish the business when the Volga's icing up and the Russians in Stalingrad are suffering severe shortages, then they'll never succeed. Time was against the Germans. The days were getting shorter and the weather colder. Antony Buvor wrote about this point, the very heavy losses in Panzer regiments were to prove serious, if not disastrous, within a matter of days, end quote. In mid-November, General von Seidlitz, commander of the 51st Army Corps, reported, 42% of my battalions must be considered fought out, end quote. You see, they had lost so many. Most companies, which are two to 300 men usually, were down to under 50 and had to be amalgamated into new units. The losses of experienced soldiers and non-commissioned officers on both sides were so high, in fact, that the people who were there felt that these were both different armies. If everyone had been replaced, these were not the same people who were there in August. So at this point, I think we should take a little break. Come back after these words from our sponsors. Remember, you can support this podcast in multiple ways. Make a monthly or a one-time donation through Patreon. That's patreon.com slash beyondbarbarossa. Through reviews on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you follow this podcast on. And by telling your friends who are into history of the Eastern Front of World War II or history in general. Let them know. Beyondbarbarossa.ca did you know that the cappuccino was invented by a Ukrainian? Or that many first names, like Philip and Agatha, were brought to Western Europe by Ukrainian princesses? Or that a Ukrainian was the first female given the rank of officer in a modern army? Well, if you didn't, and even if you did, you can learn more about my podcast, Wandering the Edge, a podcast about Ukrainian history with a spot of travel. And all in English. And if you like Beyond Barbarossa as much as I do, because, well, it makes my life a whole lot easier since I don't have to do any episodes deep diving into the Eastern Front of the Second World War, please take a listen to Wandering the Edge for a deep dive into Ukrainian history, culture, and traditions. Find out more on wanderingtheedge.net. And now let's get back to Scott exploring and explaining the Eastern Front of the Second World War. Thanks for coming back. We're delving deep into the Battle of Stalingrad. So this is the third episode focusing on Stalingrad. And you might be getting the feeling that the Red Army has been doing nothing except clinging on by its fingernails. From ground level in this devastated city, that idea seems irrefutable. But the Red Army has only slowed the German advance into Stalingrad slowed it to a creep, yes, but they have not been able to drive the Germans back, no matter how many battalions and regiments they ferry across the river. 
no matter how many young men and women they throw into the German meat grinder. But behind the scenes, way behind the scenes, the Soviet high command, Stavka, is moving. Not just paper and pencils, but actual resources, men and machines that will make a big difference. Plans that you may have heard of, Operations Mars and Uranus. If you recall last episode, in early to mid-September, Georgi Zhukov, Deputy Commander-in-Chief of the Red Army Forces, second only to Stalin himself, ordered the Dawn Front, remember a front is a group of Red Armies, the Dawn Front comprised three armies, they were ordered to attack the German 6th Army's long, extended left flank along the Don River west of Stalingrad. This was to relieve some of the pressure on Stalingrad. But the Luftwaffe and the 14th Panzer Corps repelled the attack. So Zhukov was determined not to make the same mistakes. Stalin summoned Zhukov and Alexander Vasilevsky, Stavka representative on the Stalingrad front, to the Kremlin to figure out what to do. Zhukov knew he couldn't repeat the mistakes of September. He told his boss that to drive the Germans out of Stalingrad, they needed another full-strength army, supported by a tank corps, three armored brigades, and at least 400 howitzers, supported by an air army. Vasilevsky agreed. Stalin said nothing, just studied a map of the area showing the Red Army's reserves. So Vasilevsky and Zhukov moved to a corner to discuss the situation and agreed that another solution would have to be found. To quote Antony Bivor again, Stalin possessed sharper hearing than they had realized. And what, he called across, does another solution mean? The two generals were taken aback. Go over to the general staff, he told them and think over very carefully indeed what must be done in the Stalingrad area. The plan that Zhukov and Vasilevsky came up with was, well, kind of chilling actually. First, they would hold Stalingrad in a battle of attrition with the Germans with just enough strength to hold on, but not enough to win. Meanwhile, they would recruit and equip whole new armies and divisions and move them secretly for an attack deep behind the lines and encircle far west of Stalingrad. That meant crossing the Don River, which, where it was guarded by the 8th Italian and 3rd Romanian armies. This would keep this counterattack far enough away from the 6th Army so it couldn't counterattack. Also, they would have to keep this plan completely secret. Only the three men in the room, Stalin, Zhukov, and Vasilevsky, knew about it. It being named Operation Uranus. In late September, Zhukov went to the Stalingrad front and did secret nighttime inspections all along the Germans' right flanks. Not even the drivers knew who he was. Vasilevsky did the same thing along the southern front. So take a look at the map to see what I mean. This apparently was typical of Zhukov. He had to see situations up close. The plan was a huge pincer movement. 
one overwhelming force would cross the Don River 160 kilometers or 100 miles west of Stalingrad, and another would drive far to the south of the city, and they would meet up, encircling the Germans in a huge pocket. So to really grasp this, you should take a look at Map 2 on the webpage, showing the army groups on this incredibly long salient from Ukraine to Stalingrad. The German 6th Army under Friedrich Paulus was concentrated in Stalingrad itself. Axis armies protected the extended flanks. On the left or northern side, going in order westward away from Stalingrad, were the 3rd Romanian Army, the 8th Italian Army, and finally the Hungarian Army. The southern flank was held or protected, or anyway stretched out south toward German Army Group A in the Caucasus. One important thing to realize is that the Axis did not actually hold the land up to the banks of the Don River on that left-hand or northern uh, side. The Soviets held important bridgeheads on the south or right bank. This would be key. The Romanians and the Italians just did not have the strength to push up and hold that, that line along the riverbank. Zhukov's plan was to attack the 3rd Romanian Army across from the town of Serafimovich. The 3rd Army consisted of 10 divisions, men stationed across about 200 kilometers of front, or about 120 miles. When the summer offensive had started, that, number num that army numbered about 171,000. But while they had been trained by the Germans, their equipment and battle experience did not come close. That 100-mile distance from Stalingrad meant that the Germans there would not be able to counterattack in time to accomplish anything. Now, let's look at the south, at the 4th Romanian Army. It's in even worse condition than the 3rd. By mid-November 1942, its 75,380 troops also had to hold about 200 kilometers of front. They were more poorly trained and equipped than their compatriots to the north, and their living conditions, basically tents or just trenches covered with a tarp, were no match for the advancing winter, let alone any attack. Now, how big would this attack be? Zhukov, the genius of organization, brought in over a million troops, 894 tanks, 1,500 aircraft, and 13,451 howitzers cannon, mortars, and other artillery pieces. The northern pincer consisted of the southwestern front's 1st Guards Army, 21st Army, and 5th Tank Army, and the Dawn Front's 65th and 24th Armies. So that is five full armies. In the south, the Stalingrad Front had assembled the 64th, 57th, and 51st Armies, and there was still the 62nd Army in Stalingrad itself. Now, moving this many men and machines around would easily be seen by the enemy, so the Red Army took some extraordinary measures to hide it. Operation Uranus would be the beginning of the strategies of Maskarovka and deep operations that became signature of the Soviet operations in the Second World War from here on, and they were highly effective. But there was another advantage to the Soviets at play here, and that was the German predisposition to underestimate their abilities and will to resist. For example, in the summer of 42, 
General Halder, chief of staff, told Hitler that the USSR was producing 1,200 tanks per month, while Germany was producing 500 per month. The Fuhrer slammed the table and screamed, impossible. Most of the German general staff were also dismissed the USSR's ability. Even Paulus, on the point of the battle in Stalingrad, thought warnings about Soviet buildups and the danger they posed were exaggerated. They were living in a fantasy. To understand just how deluded they were, we have to back up a little bit. One of the first and most important things that the Soviets did immediately after the German invasion in June 1941 was to dismantle and move more than 1,500 factories farther east, beyond the Volga River and the Ural Mountains. It took them a while to rebuild these factories and longer still to get them up to full production. And even then they were primitive. No heating, no windows, many with incomplete roofs. Not a good place to work. But the Soviet civilian commanders showed as little care for human life as their military counterparts. They moved employees hundreds of miles and drafted the local population to get to work making planes, trucks, munitions, arms, and, most significantly, tanks. But the Russian and other Soviet people did not need to be coerced to work. Knowing the German threat, thousands, tens of thousands, of women and girls volunteered to work in the factories. Also crucial in the middle of 1942, and also not fully appreciated by the Germans, was the impact of the Lend-Lease program. By this point, it was in full operation, bringing in clothing, tanks, airplanes, and most importantly, food. American trucks and willy jeeps were extremely valued by the Soviet officers. And the food was really the most important part. Millions of tons of American wheat and canned meat. Now, let's take a look, quick look at that question of production coming from the uh, the Soviet factories. Halder's initial report to Hitler in the summer of 1942 of 1,200 tanks per month was an underestimate. In the first half of 1942, Soviet tank production hit 11,000 per month, not 1,500, 11,000. And this rose over the year. So by the end of the year, every month they were producing 13,000 tanks. Aircraft production also hit 15,800 per month by the second half of 1942. Meanwhile, the number of Soviet Red Army regiments, divisions, and whole armies also grew faster and faster. By the autumn of 1942, Zhukov knew he had the resources he needed to make Operation Uranus work. But the next important step was training these new divisions. So as soon as they were formed up, Zhukov sent them to relatively quiet areas of the front, so maybe in the northern part or the uh, facing army group center, for training under fire. This had the further benefit of confusing German intelligence, who suspected a major offensive being planned against army group center. Zhukov persuaded Stalin to bring in his old friend and competitor, as well as one of the few survivors of the Great Purge of the 1930s, to command the Dawn Front, the force that would attack the Germans' left flank, the one and only Konstantin Rokossovsky.
Then the Stavka organized a new front, a new army group, the Southwest, commanded by Lieutenant General Nikolai Vatutin. The Soviets took some astounding measures to maintain secrecy. They ordered all civilians within 15 miles of the front lines to be evacuated by 29th October. They took all their livestock tractors and other machinery with them. This allowed Zhukov to hide the mustering troops within the evacuated villages. 100,000 civilians repaired roads and bridges in the area northeast of Stalingrad and built a new railroad from Saratov on the Volga, so upstream from uh, Stalingrad, down to Astrakhan near the Caspian Sea. This would transport troops for the offensive. Rail spurs, many new, others repaired, took troops from Saratov to their key mustering areas. This was 1,300 wagons or rail cars per day also very hard to hide from enemy intelligence and air surveillance. The Germans and their allies did notice a buildup of forces, but once again, German chauvinism dismissed it. Despite all the evidence, despite everything they had experienced at Leningrad, Moscow, and so far to Stalingrad, the German high command did not believe the Soviets had the strength to fight back. They were on the brink of collapse, was the consensus. They'd been on the brink of collapse for, what, 18 months now? They can't possibly hold out any longer, can they? Most importantly, the German generals did not dare contradict Hitler. Hitler had said the Russians were subhumans led by evil Bolsheviks, and their whole state was about to crumble. So, how did that belief work out? We'll find out in the next episode in two weeks. Thank you for listening to Beyond Barbarossa, the podcast about the Eastern Front of the Second World War. For a better understanding of the progress of the war, please see the maps and photos on the website beyondbarbarossa.ca or beyondbarbarossa.podbean.com. You can also listen to the episode on my own website, writtenword.ca. Click on the podcast button in the banner. Thanks to all who have supported the podcast and continue to support it through Patreon and your monthly subscriptions. Until all Ukrainian refugees can return home safely, your financial support goes to charities that help Ukrainian refugees. And once that is over, I'm sure we all hope it's over soon, um, it's going to go to uh, some better audio equipment and some graphics. Please, if you do like the, the podcast, consider following it on, on your preferred podcasting app and giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you listen. That really helps spread the word to others interested in this kind of history. And also, please consider supporting on Patreon yourself. If you find I've made any errors, or if you have a question or a comment, something to share, please reach out by email at contact at beyondbarbarossa.ca or through the Facebook Beyond Barbarossa page. Original music was composed and recorded by Nicholas Burry. I'm Scott Burry. Until next time, keep your paddles in the water. Slava Ukraine.